I wanted to comment about books that are being removed from public libraries and also from education institutions. I work in education and I find this trend really alarming. Right-wing fringe groups here in Idaho have successfully removed books about LGBT communities, BIPOC communities, and I think the first step in suppressing people is suppressing books and literature and thoughts and ideas about them. That message was from Connor in Idaho, but the story is similar for a lot of libraries across the country. A library in Lafayette, Louisiana, was forced to remove a Pride Month display after the board of directors was taken over by conservative Christian activists last year. The board also refused to fund a program about voting rights and attempted to fire a librarian for speaking out about the changes. In Iowa, a proposed bill would give city councils the power to overturn librarians' decisions about which books to buy and where they're displayed. And a library in Missouri canceled their bookmobile service to several schools. That's after a law passed in the state criminalizing anyone who makes visually explicit content available to students. Last week, the American Library Association reported 681 challenges to more than 1,600 titles this year. That puts 2022 on track to have the highest number of book challenges in decades. What's the future of public libraries and library workers in this climate of unprecedented censorship? We'll get into all that and more after the break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Join us for future conversations. Download the 1A Box Pop app and leave us a message. Let's jump into the conversation. Joining us to talk about it is Deborah McCula. She's the executive director of the Michigan Library Association. Debbie, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Also with us is Kimber Glidden. She's the former director of the Boundary County Public Library in Bonners Ferry, Idaho. Kimber, it's great to have you. Thanks, Jen. It's good to be here. Debbie, how does the ALA's report square with what you've been seeing in Michigan? Well, we're seeing the same kind of censorship, which is, you know, obviously nothing new, but the volume of attempted censorship efforts and and really the extremist rhetoric um, we're witnessing um, here in Michigan is pretty unprecedented. So we're seeing a lot of the same kinds of things that um, we're seeing across the nation. What's the difference between a book challenge and a book ban? You know, a book challenge is um, a book or materials that are being challenged by an individual or a group, um, and it goes through a proper, um, you know, a proper reconsideration. Um, a book ban is when the decision has been made um, to eliminate that book from the collection, um, and um, we we believe that you know a book challenge book challenges are are normal. Yet again, we're seeing such an unprecedented um, uh, amount of those challenges, uh, and we are we're making sure that we're addressing addressing those. Now, Kimber, as we said, the library you worked at is in Bonners Ferry, Idaho. How would you describe the community? Right now, the community is far right and extremist. And we are seeing uh, the community here, their rhetoric is being proactive. So our library actually doesn't have the materials that are part of the national dialogue. So we don't even have the books to be challenged or to be banned. And they are looking to preemptively censor the materials that are in our library district. You recently resigned as director of the Boundary County Public Library, and this came after the library was inundated with complaints and threats from conservative groups for months. 
What was the experience like for you? It was it was actually surprising when you move to small rural communities, you expect warmth and welcoming behavior, and that is not what I experienced. The the people here that are part of these far right movements are they they have a very they have a very distinct idea of what it is to be a patriot and to live in America. And if you fall outside of their ideology, then you are very much a target here. When you say you're a target, what types of threats were you receiving? What types of threats was the library receiving? It's it's interesting how many times you can be threatened with scripture. Mm. So uh, threats of if we were to harm children, a millstone would be put around my neck and be cast into the sea that I had better be developing the collection through God's eyes. And if I weren't, there was time for me to get myself right or there would be judgment. So the threats come through scripture and therefore, they can't be prosecuted, which is um, scary in itself. What about in person? You have to attend board meetings. How did those board meetings shift over time, your experience of them? Very quickly, they shifted from maybe a well-attended board meeting would be four or five people to between January of this year and June of this year, four or five people to over 130. We had to move our venue because people started showing up armed. Uh, We had prayer vigils being held. We had somebody that would show up and blow a shofar horn, both at the library and at our board meetings. Um, it's just using that those intimidation tactics. We did have uh, somebody show up at our house, and again, they had Bible tracts in hand, but my neighbor came over and said, "Honey, I think they're looking for you." So the, it's it's very it's very menacing. It's a very menacing atmosphere, um, and and again for. We don't have we don't have the materials, but the fact that if they were requested, we would have to consider putting them on the shelves. That's the role of the public library. Uh, that that was not an answer that that this group of, of people wanted. That that sounds just sounds terrifying. Your library had seven employees, including yourself, when all this was happening. What support did you receive? So. We did get some really great support from the community that that doesn't believe in censorship and and book banning. They would come and do beautiful sidewalk drawings and things like that. The board tried their best to be supportive, but ultimately we were on our own. The level of... um, attacks and with the frequency, the FOIA requests, the phone calls, these people showing up at the library all the time, it actually became detracting from us being able to get any work to be done. And when I left on September 10th, I had uh, three of my staff walked out with me. So um, there, there are now only three people left uh, working at the library. So reduced hours and reduced services. This week, I spoke to Deborah Caldwell-Stone. She's the director of the American Library Association's Office for Intellectual Freedom.
I began by asking her about the highlights from the ALA's new report on the rise in censorship efforts. We're seeing an unrelenting wave of censorship uh, attempts in our schools and libraries across the country. Um, Almost a tripling of the number of censorship attempts reported to us in 2019. And it's on track to be another record year for censorship demands uh, that are being given to school boards and library boards. But the real takeaway from the numbers we're seeing is that we're no longer seeing an individual parent or community member look at a book and raise a concern with a librarian or an educator in their community. We're seeing well-organized and well-funded advocacy groups uh, go to school boards and library boards with a list of bad books that don't fit their agendas in regards to morality or politics and demanding their removal. And we're talking about publicly funded community institutions that are supposed to be serving the entire community's information needs. Why do you think we're seeing this this increase in these efforts? One, I think that under the rubric of parents' rights, the issue of censoring books, restricting access to books, has proven to be a a good political wedge issue. Uh, We saw that in the gubernatorial race in Virginia uh, a year ago with uh, Governor Youngkin uh, exploiting uh, a parent's desire to remove Toni Morrison's beloved from Virginia high schools and not being successful in that and then promising parents that they would be able to exercise that control over their children's learning in Virginia. And so I see a number of politicians and elected officials jumping on that bandwagon. But I also believe that we have a number of advocacy organizations that are focused on opposing access to materials that reflect the lives and experiences of LGBTQIA persons um, or are exploiting moral panics over what's called critical race theory. Have you tracked what these organizations are, if they're specific ones? The ones that we're seeing most often in the headlines um, are groups like Moms for Liberty, uh, and an ironic title if I ever heard one, uh, Parents Defending Education, uh, No Left Turn in Education. We can look at experiences of uh, libraries and schools in like Victoria, Texas, for example, where an active Moms for Liberties group has sought to re- uh, restrict or eliminate books from the school library and have now pivoted and demanded the removal of those same books from the public library in Victoria, Texas. There are public libraries on the verge of shuttering because of challenges to their collections. How concerned are you about the future of public libraries and the safety of library employees in this climate? We are just... There's just no words to describe what we're feeling. We're seeing public servants individuals who've made the decision to work in their communities, for their communities, to provide for information needs, to teach the children, being attacked for nothing more than doing their jobs and for doing their jobs on behalf of young people who are, uh, as I said, you know, often denied some of the more uh, basic privileges in our society. You know, we do all we can to work with individual librarians and educators to help them uh, address censorship 
censorship attempts. We provide them with resources on how to protect themselves and their communities. We work with library boards on issues around how to communicate the library story and to sustain the funding that keeps the library open. So much of this is based on disinformation and misinformation spread by advocacy groups who want to limit our access to ideas and information. And it's not just for young people. I think when they're done with the schools, they'll turn to the public libraries and maybe even to um, the wider world. We saw this already in Virginia Beach where there was an attempt to uh, sue Barnes & Noble and prevent Barnes & Noble from selling a number of books to young people in the community. we one of the few societies in the world that has something like a First Amendment, and it's incumbent on all of us to protect it. Um, and just because we're seeing this vocal minority um, take control right now um, and have a wide appeal with certain elected officials as a political wedge issue doesn't take away our obligation to defend those rights, to defend the freedom to read. That's Deborah Caldwell-Stone. She's the director of the American Library Association's Office for Intellectual Freedom. Deborah, thanks for speaking with us. Thanks for inviting me. It's been great having a conversation. And we should note we reached out to Moms for Liberty, an organization that was mentioned earlier in the show. They decided not to offer a statement. Debbie and Kimber, I, I want to hear from you what about this moment feels different from the waves of book bans we've seen in the past. Debbie? I just think it's, again, it's, you know, I don't think that censorship is anything new. And we're just seeing this volume um, of individuals and groups now that are well-organized, well-funded, and they're, um, they're sharing information, whether it's online or, you know, in our communities. And we have to address it. And we have to be proactive about addressing it. Um, we do believe that this is a, you know, the statistics kind of show us that this is a very small vocal minority. Um, but they're giving the impression that our schools and our libraries are full of offensive materials. And it's that simply not the case. So I, I know that the, you know, the tenet of librarianship is really about providing, um, you know, for the interests of all and, and to do so without bias. And I think that what we want to recognize is that, you know, parents, parents can steer their own children to appropriate materials, but, and, and we have to acknowledge, you know, their right um, to do that, but they can't, you know, they can't make they can't make decisions for me. They can't make decisions for the majority of the population that don't want to live under their, you know, their, um, under their, under their, um, you know, kind of narrow intolerant views. Mm. So, so that's, that we're seeing a vocal, very vocal minority showing up at our board meetings, at school board meetings, and at library board meetings. Um, and we need to show up as well. We need to make sure that that majority is, you know, is, is the, the voices, our voices are just as strong. Now, Kimber, the insurance company that covered your library's building decided not to renew its coverage because of all the threats the library received. And as we said earlier, four employees left along with you, so now there are only three left. This is the only public library in Bonners Ferry. What do you think the future of the Boundary County Library is? 
Oh, the hopeful part of me hopes that we make it through this. The insurance company did agree to give an extension to allow for us or for the district to shop the private market. So we're hoping that that's a way they can insure it. But politically, Idaho has moved so far to the right. There is a very good possibility that Idaho ship or librarianship in Idaho is untenable, not just in Bonner's Fair but potentially throughout the state. Debbie, there will be another vote in November that'll determine whether the Patmos Library will recoup its funding. How hopeful are you that residents will vote to restore it? Well, I'm hopeful that the Yes campaign is doing its job. They have, you know, another, you know, less than 45 days right now to kind of get their, get, um, you know, get their, um, their, um, their, their own uh, uh, information out to the voters. Um, when I attended one of their board meetings, it really was, they were very, many were very surprised that their vote was to, um, you know, to, to take away the operating dollars um, for the next 10 years of that library. So I think once that's recognized, who, you know, nobody wants to lose their library, right? They, they you know, they don't, you know, closing the doors, you know, there's an economical reason to keep them open. There's a social reason to keep them open. There's an educational reason. Um, and and it really does serve as a, you know, a, a, in the heart of Jamestown Township, it really is um, the heart of that community. So um, hopefully hopefully that doesn't happen. Um, we are watching um, and, and providing any kind of support that we possibly can. That's Deborah Makula, the executive director of the Michigan Library Association, and Kimber Glidden. She's the former director of the Boundary Boundary County Public Library in Bonners Ferry, Idaho. Debbie, Kimber, thanks to you both. Up next, some book bans result in a spike in sales for authors, but most book challenges go unreported and can put an author's career in jeopardy. Remember to connect with us on Twitter. Tweet us your thoughts and questions at 1A. Now let's get back to our conversation about the uptick in book challenges and bans around the country. Earlier, we spoke about public libraries and their employees, but there's another group that's directly impacted by this wave of bans, writers. Joining us to talk about the impact book bans have on authors, and particularly authors from marginalized backgrounds, is Kiese Lehman. He's the author of several books, including Heavy, an American Memoir, Long Division, and the essay collection, How to Slowly Kill Yourself and Others in America. He's also a professor of English at Rice University in Houston, Texas. Kiese, it's great to have you back. I'm so happy to be here with you. Thank you. Also with us is Connor Goodwin. He's a freelance writer and literary critic. His latest piece in The Atlantic is called The Banned Books You Haven't Heard About. Connor, welcome to the program. Thanks. Happy to be here. Now, Kiese, your memoir, Heavy, was banned by a school board in Missouri earlier this year. What has that experience been like for you? Um, I mean, on one hand, it's great to be on any list with Morrison and Jason Reynolds. They were banned in Missouri, too. Um, But a lot of us who write these books, you know, we write them because our identities were sort of de facto banned in high school and in high school libraries. You know, and so when you ban or attempt to erase a teenage identity, you're banning or erasing the stories that come with those identities. And so the last thing that I ever wanted to do as an author was to create books that would be used to punish kids. And the next to last thing I ever wanted to do was to create books that would be associated with child pornography. And that's what the folks in Missouri claimed Heavy was doing. You said it especially hurt to see your book banned alongside Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye. Why? 
Uh, well, it, it's paradoxical. I mean, it, it on one hand, I mean, anytime you're on a list with Morrison, you have to feel like you've done something worthwhile. Um, but on the other hand, I literally could not believe that Morrison had, had been banned. And then when I started to do my research, like, you know, months and months ago, I was like, oh, Morrison's been banned a lots and lots of places. Um, and, and, you know, for a lot of us who do this work, you know, Morrison um, on, on the craft level is the epitome of what we attempt to do. And so when we live in a country where, and you know, the best writer to me ever is being banned, that, that means that those parents are saying that there's nothing that this writer has to offer our children. And so for those of us who study Morrison and who are somewhat, you know, acolytes of Morrison, that hurts in and of itself. And then to be put on a list with, with, with Morrison, again, feels good, but it also, it also feels kind of icky. Well, I also want to circle back to what you said about your identity being banned when you were a teenager, when you were in high school. I would imagine there is a specific emotional um, pain <laughs> that goes along with trying to create the stories you were looking for when you were a teen and realizing that in some places they're they're still not not wanted is that is that accurate absolutely absolutely i mean that to me is is as accurate as as you can get again like you know we're, we're exp- those of us who write these books are we're exploring things that we were taught not to explore i went to a mostly black school in jackson mississippi and I was discouraged from writing black narratives at that black school. Like, you know, when, when you incentivize kids to not write about themselves, you're incentivizing them to write themselves out of literature, to ban themselves. And so some of us took the pen and tried to write ourselves back into literature and not just libraries, but into literature. And so, again, having people not just say that your book is going to potentially harm my child, but having people say that your book is actually child pornography, Um Though I think it actually does in, enhance, you know, the sales of my particular book. But in that particular region, I think there are a lot of kids who maybe, you know, needed to read a Blue Aside, uh, a Jason Reynolds book, you know, maybe wanted or needed to read heavy. And I just think they should have the opportunity. It should not be banned, uh, 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 definitely because of where we come from. Among the books that have been banned from schools, 41% dealt with LGBTQ themes. Another 40% included protagonists or secondary characters of color. That's according to Penn America. Kiese, what are some of the challenges marginalized writers face in getting published in the first place? I mean, we have to convince uh, editors that, one, that Black people actually read books. Then we have to, I mean, I'm speaking for, for black, black authors. Then we have to convince editors that white people might want to read these books that black people write. Then we have to convince editors that there are more people in the world than black and white people. So this, this happens at the editorial and the agent level. Like much longer before you get to the publishing level, you have to continually show and tell and prove that there's a readership for your book. And this is not just like for new authors. These are these authors who've sold 300, 400,000 books. So from the from the beginning, I think you're you're working on this deficit, right? Like like you're working with a with the, with the populace or often with the industry that still needs to be coerced into believing that black people specifically and LGBTQ black people, I would say specifically specifically read. Okay, I say I just want to give you a chance to explain as you understand it. What was the specific complaint about heavy? I mean, Heavy's been been challenged a number of places, but the most publicized place was in Missouri. And again, they they said it was child pornography. You know, I I, I write about um, sexual abuse. Um, I don't write about it. I I don't think I write about it uh, grotesquely or anything like that. But I I write about it, and and I have an editorial. You know, I editorialize on on sexual abuse in in my in my book. 
Um, and I ultimately <laughs> am saying that we need to come to terms with the fact that this exists in a lot of our children's lives. Um, and I, and then they use that to say that, you know, heavy was child pornography. And I think when you when you label something child pornography, it's easy to, mm-hmm. for uh, a lot of people to be like, we don't want our children to have anything to do with that. And I don't know how closely you followed what happened in Missouri, but were you able to glean whether or not people issuing these complaints had actually read the book? Absolutely not. And I just also want to thank the, 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 the children and the kids and the parents of these kids in a lot of these districts, particularly in Missouri, who fought back um, to have the right to have heavy uh, Morrison, Jason Reynolds in, in, in those libraries. But there's I, I don't I mean, I, I don't think this is a, a, a deep statement. These people aren't reading these books. These people are looking at a synopsis of these books, sending around a list of books that they want to be banned and using this as, as political artillery. Um, but I just don't want to have any part in, in, in parents or, or, or school boards harming their children. And I think when you take Morrison out, when you take Jason Renner's out, when you take Miles out, when you take gender queer out, you're harming your children. And a lot of us just don't want to have any part in that. We wrote the books actually to do the opposite kind of work. Now, selling books to libraries is one of the ways publishers and by extension authors make money. Cotter, explain the relationship between publishing houses and libraries. Yeah. So when I was looking into this, you know, it was pretty easy to kind of look at sales data and pinpoint um, when there was a huge increase uh, and attribute that to uh, the book ban. But it was a little harder to illustrate the harms. Um, And so part of how I did that was looking at the importance of the educational marketplace, um, especially to YA authors, young adult authors, um, who've been particularly targeted in this most recent ban. I think Penn America put out a report uh, that 47% of the books that have been challenged um, have been young adult books. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and again, these you know young adult authors, they're, they're writing for these audiences specifically. They're writing for teenagers, for middle schoolers. Um, and when they lose these deals, which are wholesale deals that can number in the thousands, um, that's losing a very crucial and steady revenue stream for both the authors and publishers alike. Now, Kiese, you live in Texas, which has banned more books from school libraries than any other state. So you're living in this state with this record as a writer and an English professor. How are you sitting with that? <laughs> That's a great question. I just moved to Texas um, from that other bastion of uh, democracy called Mississippi. Um, and, and so far, you know, I, I got to be honest and say that, you know, the communities and the people that I that I connect with and see, you know, they're like, congratulations on your book being banned in Missouri. And and, and I get it. I get it. But I, I just also think that there's there's something really humiliating about creating a text that was meant to do, among other things, like wrap itself around young people and to have that text be associated with child pornography or any sort of like absolute harm. Um, in addition to, again, being, you know, happy that I'm on a list with Morrison, it's, it's, it's humiliating. And and so when people talk to me about the banned book stuff, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm often like, yeah, let's talk about it. But but I, I just think part of it we don't talk about is the humiliation of creating an art object that some people deem um, wholly harmful to the group that you want it to be wholly uh, revolutionary to. The publishing industry has struggled to compete with Amazon, and as a result, one of the biggest publishing houses, Penguin Random House, is trying to acquire another house, Simon & Schuster. Connor, what could that mean for the risks publishers are or aren't willing to take on the books they take on? 
Yeah, I was really interested, and in, this is the other big story happening in the publishing world right now is this um, antitrust lawsuit the DOJ has filed against Penguin Random House, the world's largest publisher, for their proposed merger with Simon and Simon and Schuster. And you know, if that were to go through, they'd be twice as large as their next competitor. Um, and what I found in talking to uh, publishers and authors, um, everybody really thought that this was bad news. It was bad for business and um, also bad for the marketplace of ideas. Um, so I think, you know, people have pointed out that uh, as as this like a mega Penguin Random House. Um, would become even more concerned with its bottom line and more risk averse um, and less willing to take on uh, new authors doing daring work and marginalized authors for all the reasons Kiese uh, pointed out before. And um, as one uh, author colorfully put it, uh, it gives those doing the censoring uh, just one big throat to strangle. Mm-hmm. Kiese, we've only got about 30 seconds here, but I'm curious what you think the future of being a writer looks like in, in this climate. Um, I, th- I think the future looks like what the past looks like. I think you're going to have to, you know, write your books, put your books out, try to find communities that can actually move the book. Um, and, and then I think you're going to have to be willing to sometimes go to these places that are banning these books, show up and not just show up to, to, to fight the people who are banning them, but show up to talk to the students who don't get a chance to read your books and say, we are here and we want to hear from you, too. That's Kiese Lehman. He's author of several books, including Heavy, an American Memoir, Long Division, and the essay collection, How to Slowly Kill Yourself and Others in America. Also with us, Connor Goodwin. He's a freelance writer and literary critic. His latest piece in The Atlantic is called The Banned Books You Haven't Heard About. Kiese, Connor, thanks to you both. Today's producer was Haley Blassingame. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A.